Rich, I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic uh, North Central. And today we're doing something um, really important. We're kicking off a brand new preaching series. We do this from time to time. Sometimes we'll journey through a book of the Bible. Other times we'll take on some different themes, some things that are really important. And today, uh, kicking off a new series called Resistance. Say that with me, Resistance. Resistance. The idea being that there are some big popular ideas in Western culture well, in fact, in any culture, but the Western culture is the one that we are surrounded by, that if we don't pay attention to them, can disciple us, can lead us, can draw us away from Jesus. That there are some things in the culture that surround us that we actually need to resist, we need to hold at bay if we are to flourish in our relationship with God and in the world that he's placed us in. What is culture? It's a bit of a kind of junk drawer term almost, isn't it? You hear it thrown around lots. Well, what we're talking about here is the narratives that surround us all the time. So it's the way things are done around here. You heard that phrase before. It's just the way things are done around here. Maybe you start a new workplace and someone says, why do you do that? And they, I don't know. It's just the way things are done around here. Like, jump on board. This is how it's done. It includes values, culture does. It includes things like parenting styles, ways of viewing the world, ways of viewing your money, ways of viewing sexuality, power. It's the way in which we go about our work. That would be like workplace culture. It's the way we consume and enjoy sport. That would be sports culture. It's the way you enjoy and wear. You drink your coffee. That would be coffee culture. No, none of us know about that, do we? None of us drink coffee. That was away from Mark. Mark owns a coffee shop, for those who aren't in the know on the joke. That's important for the tape. Um, listen, as Christians, we need discernment and wisdom to decide what stuff we can just receive and enjoy, and then what stuff we actually need to question and even potentially reject. And this series, really, it's a, it's a call to thoughtful cultural engagement. It's taking seriously that as Christians... We live and we believe a story about the world, but it's not the only narrative that's on offer. And actually, we're surrounded by multiple narratives, competing narratives. And at times, we're going to bump into those, and we need to work out what we do with them. And it's not about condemning culture as well as if we are kind of above it and somehow untouched by it in our Christian faith, like we walk around in a bubble you know, and nothing penetrates. No, we're actually touched by this stuff, actually, and influenced by it all the time. So it's not about condemning it, but instead it's about equipping us to see the flaws in the narrative. And as we are equipped, hopefully we can help others to see the flaws in the narrative too. Because these ideologies, they, they promise a lot. They promise a lot that they can't deliver on. And if we are going to be people who live a better story, and if we're going to be people in Leeds in the world who point others to a better story, we've got to be able to discern them. We've got to be able to discern what they're all about. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey. We're going to go on a journey from uh, secularism to faith. That's one of the themes. We're going to go on a journey from tribalism to diversity. Narcissism, which is like the self-love to love of others. Materialism or, consumer, uh, or consumerism to generosity. These are different ways to live, aren't they? Distraction to focus or escapism to engagement with important things. So today, the journey we're going on is anxiety to peace. Just that really small topic, anxiety to peace, all right? And as we start, I'm going to invite up Martha. Martha's going to come and read to us. If you have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, then you can turn to Philippians 4, and we're starting in verse 4. 
Um, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thanks, Martha. Okay, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I pray as we take on a topic here which touches the lives of many, many in the room and many of the people we know. Lord, it can be so crippling and we just pray now that we would, as we um, look at this in detail, Lord, we would hear your hope for this topic. Lord, you would take us on a journey today. I pray that you would speak through my words clearly and powerfully in your name. Amen. I mean, what is anxiety? Well, the definition is this. It's a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. That's the definition, but I think we're all a bit more familiar with what it actually feels like, aren't we? It's memories of your first day at school, walking into the unfamiliar. You know, wide eyes. Will I make friends? Will I like the food? Will I get lost? A lot of that, some of our children have experienced that this week, and parents, I should probably say. For some, it's the anxiety you might feel around starting a project at work. And the anxiety almost means that before you've started, it like almost stops you from starting for fear of failing. So you haven't even done anything yet, and it's like you can't even get going. And maybe you do anything but the thing in front of you. You're just distracted. You procrastinate. For some, anxiety comes when you've had a conflict. And instead of bringing that conflict to the person, bringing it to God, bringing it to the person. Instead, you kind of like replay it over in your mind and you start thinking, you start rehearsing the conversation. You know, I'll say this, then they'll say that, then I'll say that, and then they'll say this. And it's almost like you're trying to get to the bottom of every eventual outcome. I think we all know what that feels like. For others, maybe it's FOMO, the fear of missing out if you're not in on the lingo. The fear of missing out when you look at your social media and you see that, you know, lots of people are hanging out and you weren't invited. Or you look and you think, man, everyone else's life just looks that little bit more exciting than mine. Has anyone felt that before? No? No, Matt's got... I feel it when I look at Matt's life. It's just so exciting. Or for others, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's seeing that you've sent a message. You've seen it's been read. And because it hasn't been replied to in about... 0.7 seconds, you just think, oh, you think the worst rather than thinking the best. Maybe it's a feeling in the pit of your stomach you have when you go on your online banking, you get the app out and you just think, gosh, is enough going to be enough this month? And that feeling just doesn't seem to go away. It just stirs in your stomach. Maybe it's watching the news, energy crisis, war in the Ukraine, stock markets down, oh, my retirement the property ladder, gosh, will I ever get on it? Housing market's up, look how expensive it is. Maybe it's the very real possibility of losing a loved one or somebody getting long-term sick. And then there's other anxiety that's actually rooted in an experience that you've had, and it's rooted in a moment. So when I think about my journey with anxiety, I don't think it's been something that's been a major theme. But as I was preparing this, I thought, actually, yes, some of the fears I have they actually are rooted in something. So I remember, probably at the age of five years old, overhearing a conversation that my dad was having in his office, because he worked at home, partly, and he was an architect. And I remember standing by the door, overhearing this conversation, and just hearing, Dad, this sounded different. He sounded quite scared, he sounded frustrated, he sounded angry. And I, I remember 
he slammed down the phone and I just heard him, he's lost his job. And, and he came out and I, and, he, and I could tell he just looked different and the anxiety he felt about losing the job was passed on to me in that moment. Because at five, you know, you, you take on the fears of your parents. And I just remember in that moment, it didn't just become his, it became mine. So then I think one of the days following at school, I remember having a conversation with one of, one of my friends. And I said, do you know what you're going to do when you leave school? And he looked at me and he said, we're six. There's a long way to go. <laughs> you know. But for me, it was suddenly like, we've got to get this in order. We've got to sort this out. I don't know what I'm going to do. It wasn't his anxiety. He hadn't had this experience that I had just had. The experience I had 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 led to something, planted a seed, and it didn't, and it, which meant that it lingered. Not always, but it lingered in that area. So every now and again, even as I was older, like, I would think back, oh, yeah, jobs are fragile. Like money, money, money can be tight. And I remember that anxiety lived on in some of those moments. Anxiety can come in many different forms and at many different times for different reasons. It's also a really loaded term. It's a loaded term because though a lot of us get anxious, we don't all live with constant anxiety, do we? Lots of people do. Some of you here maybe have a diagnosed or undiagnosed anxiety disorder, right? And for you, it drastically limits your life. It affects your mental health. And you might be listening to this even afterwards. You might be watching this because you're not even in the room. Because the idea of being in a room like this just almost makes you so tense. It makes you, I, I can't do that. And you're watching this afterwards. And if you're in that category, I really want you to know that I want you to hear there is compassion for you today. But as well as compassion, there is also hope. There's also hope in the verses we've just read that even though you have a diagnosis, you're not outside of the promises of God. That there is still freedom for you and it may look different. It may take many years. It may take counseling. It may take great perseverance and endurance. But there is still freedom available for you today. So that's what it feels like. Is it on the up or is it on the way down? What do you think? Are we as a, as a society getting more or less anxious? What do you think? More, more. Not to make you feel more anxious about it, but it is more. The Barna Research Group in 2019 polled 15,000 millennials and Gen Zers. So just to help you out, I had to Google this. Uh, so people born from 1981 to 2010. That is, that's that, that gap. Across 19 different countries, and the research showed that anxiety isn't just a common experience, but it's the dominant experience of their lives. Or emotion, should I say. It's the dominant emotion that they feel. And that's pre-pandemic 2019, just to say. American psychologist Robert Lethe says this, the average high school kid, he's an American, so he's talking, but the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. It's, so it's dominant, it's growing. Why? Why in, I guess, an era where, you know, our, seats, our streets are safer to walk down, our cars are safer to drive in, our food is better for us, drugs are better regulated, why, as a society, are we getting more anxious? 
and why, as a Western society, are we more anxious than societies where you can just die really young because they don't have the right medical stuff in place, where we have that? You know, there's all sorts of stuff to say that actually the more developing nations are more anxious than the less developed ones. Like, what's going on there? In a Slate article, Taylor Clark writes this. After extensive research, he identifies three reasons for this rise. Just see if any of these resonate with you. Number one, loss of community. He says this, I'll quote, human contact and kinship help alleviate anxiety. Yet as we leave family behind to migrate all over the country, often settling in insular suburbs where our closest pal is our plasmid screen TV or our phone, we miss out on this all-important element of in-person connection. Urbanization and the pace of life, prioritizing career over community, and social, sorry, and the social and relational needs that we all have. So for many, when trouble comes, we've already moved away from the support structures. Number two, he says, the second reason for the rise is information overload. We've gone from having maybe a computer in the corner of the house, like that's what I grew up with, that's what I remember from my you know, early years, dial up, like we all remember that. Computer in the corner of the house to multiple screens in the house. We've gone from a newspaper to a never-ending stream of information, which is just buzz to our phone all the time. He writes again in 2011, this is, he says, the average Sunday newspaper contains more raw information than people in earlier eras would absorb over the course of a few years. Some sorry, neuroscientists believe that our brains simply weren't designed to handle this kind of volume. And now think about your scrolling habits. I mean, he's talking about the paper. He's talking about the paper. Like, our phones are like a paper that doesn't have an end. Because you just scroll, don't you? It's like, there's no, it doesn't say finish. It's like, you just scroll and there's more information, more information, more information. So, it's unlimited. It's with us all the time. Is there any wonder that we're feeling overwhelmed? And it's not just the amount of information that we consume. This constant avalanche of data is also increasingly alarmist, and it's fear-inducing. Taylor Clark, again, in the article, goes on to write this. If the news isn't about a murder, it's exposing a hidden threat in our own home. The media does this all the time, always reporting on the thing that causes cancer or that thing that can kill you. We live in a culture where fear is used to motivate us, where fear is used to motivate us. Finally, the research shows that anxiety is up because the third, we are intolerant of our negative emotions. We're intolerant of our negative emotions. I'll just continue with a quote. I think it's so revealing. It says this, we have developed habits for dealing with anxiety and stress that actually make them far worse. We vilify our adverse emotions and fight them rather than letting them run their course. We avoid situations that make us nervous. We try to bury uncomfortable feelings like anxiety and stress with alcohol, entertainment, or shopping sprees. We've fallen victim to feel-goodism, the false idea that bad feelings ought to be annihilated, controlled, or erased by a pill. The intolerance towards emotional pain puts us at loggerheads with the basic truth about being human. Sometimes we just feel bad, and there's nothing wrong with that, which is why struggling too hard to control anxiety and stress actually only makes things more difficult. The thing we're trying to do 
often to make it feel better actually makes it more difficult. Lack of community, information overload, and falling in love with the desire to always feel good. I think they're so helpful. I think there's a ton of truth in them. I think as Christians, we should be people who listen to psychologists and people who study culture. But there is something really drastically missing, I would say. And that is an acknowledgement of the spiritual dimension of our lives. The spiritual dimension of our lives. As a nation and as, an, as individuals, we've minimized and we've questioned and probably altogether sidelined God. And we've been on this journey of doing this for a number of years now. You know, the postmodern statement which sums up the view today so well is that you're the captain of your ship, you're the master of your fate. It basically means, you know, God's not in charge, you're in charge. He's over there, you're the important one. Go with what you feel. People have been told a story about the world, which is you don't need God, you've already got what you need. That rings true, doesn't it? You don't need God. You've already got what you need. All you need to do is reach deep inside and activate it. Reach deep inside and grab it. So what happens when trouble comes, when tragedy hits, people get to the end of themselves, and what do they do? They reach deep inside and they find nothing. What about if you first find more darkness, despair, questions? What do you do in that moment? Well, that's when you have an anxiety crisis. And that's happening on a national level. So we all feel it. It's going up in the culture, not down. What is the answer to the anxiety that we all feel, lots of us feel, that's increasing around us? Paul in Philippians, he gives us two tools to fight anxiety. He gives us two practices, that things that we don't just need to know about, that we actually need to put into practice. And these two things that will lead us from anxiety to peace are worship and prayer and petition. And I'll be honest, I know you're thinking that doesn't sound very sexy. You know, that point isn't bouncing off the page. I was having anxiety trying to find a more sticky point, but I'm just going with what's in the text. Worship and prayer and petition. All right, here we go. Number one, so he says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul is teaching this young church in Philippi such an important truth that when you're facing anxiety-inducing circumstances, and they were facing, just think about where Paul's writing from. He's writing from prison, and he was writing to a people who could be thrown in prison, who could be killed for their faith. When you're facing anxiety-inducing circumstances, whether it's persecution like they were, whether it's fear of the unknown, whether it's sickness, whether it's losing a job, whatever it might be, the first step is to gain some perspective by taking your eyes off the problem, the pain, the fear, and looking at God. Taking your eyes off the problem and looking at God. Worship brings perspective. Because in worship, what you find is you see a God who is all-powerful. He's ruling and reigning over all circumstances. So the very thing that is causing you fear, the very thing that if it doesn't go well, life might not be worth living, he's ruling and reigning above it. Karl Barth, a famous theologian from the 18th century, says this, to begin praising God that even in this situation, as it is, he is still mighty God. Such a beginning is the end of anxiety. Such a beginning is already the end of anxiety. Where anxiety seeks to pull your gaze towards the source of worry and keep it there, almost like a magnet. It's like, look at me, look at me, look at me. 
Worship, rejoicing in God, reminds us that he's so much bigger than the worry in front of us. Just really quickly, I mean, I've shared, uh, lots of you know our story. You know, the last three years, we received uh, just a raft of bad news around our children. You know, so uh, when Beth was pregnant with Zoe, we found out that she uh, needed heart surgery and that if she didn't have it, and that even if she did have it, we, she might not make it. And she got through it. And we thought, phew, we've dodged a bullet. And then it was like, okay, you know, let's go again. And then we find out actually that there's another problem at 12 weeks and that we lose and bury our another child either. And again, it's like, boom, you've been hit again. And I would say that experiencing bad news multiple times took me from being quite a resilient person, quite a confident person, to being a bit of a shell to being pretty fragile. And I remember having conversations with people where I just thought, man, like this must be getting boring for them. Like, like we're here again and I'm feeling this again. And the reality is anxiety and grief became like the white noise that surrounded my life. So even when I was doing something, whatever I was doing, it might not have even been linked to it, but it was like white noise, like shh. It's like no one else could hear it, but I can hear it. And it's the fears that rumble. And the only thing that, cut through the white noise was looking at God. The only thing that cut through the white noise, because it was in looking at God that I realized that I'm actually part of a bigger story. That, you know, even if our story, even if this happens multiple times again to us, we're part of a bigger story and he is enough. And even if I don't feel like he's enough, I'm trusting that I know that he sees the beginning from the end. He loves me and he is enough. He is enough. And the reality is that's the only thing. It was like a knife. And, it, and when I ignored it, the white noise got louder. And, you know, for you, you might have gone there and that might not be your experience. I'm just speaking from experience. The only thing that cut through it was taking my eyes off the circumstances and looking at God for who he is. So, you've looked at God in worship. You've allowed him to bring some perspective. You've reminded yourself of his goodness. Hopefully, the perspective has come. The circumstances have almost shrunk in front of you. But the worries are still real and they're still there. It's not like they just evaporate. It's not like they just, you know, disappear into thin air. What else can you do? Well, you can bring them to God in prayer and petition. That's what Paul says. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Present them to him. To do that, the first step is to knowing what they actually are. That's the reality. Interior examination is needed. Because I think sometimes we can just think, hear that command, do not be anxious. If we think, okay, not going to be anxious. You know, it's just like, that's it. I've decided I'm not going to be anxious. Fine. It's like, you still sound anxious. It's like, no, I'm not anxious. I've decided. It says don't be anxious. I'm not anxious. And the reality is we can't just tell ourselves to feel something. You can't just tell yourself if you're sad to feel happy. Like, you can do some things that might lead you there. But you can't just, boom, tell yourself in that moment to do it. Emotions need to be worked through. And they need acknowledging before you can work through them. And if you don't acknowledge them, you bottle them up, all that happens is eventually they're just going to find the side door of your life. Yeah, one day you'll be in a coffee shop and someone will bring you a macchiato instead of a cortado and bang! It's like they get it all. All your problems, it's like, whoa, chill out. It's like, what's happened? The emotion has just exploded on somebody because you haven't acknowledged it, you haven't worked through it. 
This is why David prays in Psalm 139. He says, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. He needs God's help with it. A really real example from this week, around Thursday, just the irony of preaching on anxiety. This preach was giving me the anxiety of my life, it almost felt like. And uh, it was only just one factor, but I was suddenly, I was just like, it wasn't really coming together. I was like, what, what am I feeling here? I was like, I need something to get away. I got sat down with a cup of tea. I was just like, what is going on? And I just went from vague anxiety and just feeling a bit tetchy and responding badly to Beth and the kids. I was like, oh, what's going on in my heart? I listed it out. It's like Robin's starting school. The whole house is slightly on high alert. No real reason. It's just bring. It's like loads of stuff to get ready. Things are new. It's like anxiety was just like increasing around us. Then I had this preach. It should have been done by Thursday. It wasn't. I had to spend time on Friday and Saturday. It's like, it's like that. It's like, come on, Rich. This should be done. This shouldn't be like spreading into every area of your life. And then I got a parking ticket. And this parking ticket, I was like, do I need to pay it? Do I ignore it? Do I appeal it? The appeal's really difficult. I think they're a fake company. What do I do? I don't have time to look at it. That was the next thing that was on my list. And then two weeks ago, one of my really good friends from home received a diagnosis that he's got stomach cancer, stage four. He's got two kids, Robin and Zoe's age, and they got married a month before that. And I'm like, you know, so from the seemingly insignificant to the really difficult news about a close friend, things were just coming up. And what I did as I listed it out before God, it already changed things. It already changed. It went from vague to specific. And when it went from vague to specific, I could cast those cares on God. You can't cast your cares on God if you don't know what they are. You've got to acknowledge them. You've got to know what they are. And by taking time to honestly reflect, it went from vague to specific. I reminded myself that, God, you are bigger than all this list of stuff. You know, the beginning from the end. None of it is outside your reach, outside your power. And once I'd done that, I could cast them on him. And I could leave them with him and not pick them up again. You know, whether we let them stew and kind of magnify and go around in our heads, that's worry. That's one option. If you don't pray, you can worry about it. And you let them stew and they magnify. Or you can just take them to God and you can leave them there. And that is the best place for them. It's the only place for them. And if we do that, If we do that, the promise is this, verse 7, that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Transcendent peace. Transcendent peace, guarding your heart and mind. Man, we could all do with some more of that, couldn't we? Transcendent peace. But don't get it kind of mixed up. It's not the worldly definition of peace. And when I say transcendent peace... We're not talking about here like ice cream, sun loungers, holidays, like everything's just going up, going to go away. It's not singing kumbaya. The reality is that wouldn't be transcendent. That would be peace that makes sense, wouldn't it? That wouldn't be peace that passes understanding because it just sounds peaceful to everybody. That would just be peace. But it's peace that transcends understanding. And it transcends understanding because it doesn't always make sense. In the circumstances you're facing, people would look at it and go, you shouldn't be feeling peace right now. But what happens is, it's almost like in light of who God is, he kind of reorientates the circumstances and it changes how you feel about them in light of who he is. So maybe the problems don't feel like they've necessarily gone anywhere, but you just feel differently about them. They're just, you can carry them in a different way because you've submitted them to God, you've trusted that he's bigger than them and he's with you in them. 
So listen, as I come to a close, how do we move from anxiety to peace? You allow God to bring some perspective in worship. Like fix your eyes on him. Fight the avalanche of information, the distraction, the buzzing. Like fight that because that will crowd in and say, God, I need to fix my eyes on you. Know your anxieties and bring them to God in prayer and receive his peace. Do you want to stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. Thank you, God, that your peace is available today. Lord, that when the worries of life come our way, with your help, we can see them for what they are. And in light of who you are, we can receive your peace. I just pray now for anybody, even as I've been speaking, it's like they've almost bubbled to the surface. Lord, I pray that in the bubbling to the surface, that we might now, in worship, fix our eyes on you, that we would see them shrink, that almost where they, where they want to balloon, where they want to get bigger in our vision, where they want to say, don't look at anything else, just look at me. Lord, I pray in worship we would lift our heads, and in lifting our heads we would name them for what they are, and that we would bring them to you, the God who cares, the God who says, bring them to me. I can handle them. I care for you in them. And I see where they're going to end. I see the beginning from the end. You don't. Lord, where, where we struggle to trust you, where we're trying to lean forward and see into the future because we, we feel like we need to know. We need to know how this ends. Lord, I pray that we would trust the God who sees the beginning from the end. In your name I pray. Amen.